0: Welcome to the Thinking Practitioner Podcast.
1: A podcast where we dig into the fascinating issues, conditions, and quandaries in the massage and manual therapy world today.
0: I'm Whitney Lowe.
1: And I'm Till Welcome,
0: Welcome to, to the, the Thinking, Thinking Practitioner. Practitioner.
1: The Thinking Practitioner Podcast is supported by ABMP, Associated Bodywork and Massage Professionals. ABMP membership gives professional practitioners like you a package including individual liability insurance, free continuing education and quick reference apps, legislative advocacy, and much more. ABMP CE courses,
0: podcast and massage and Bodywork magazine always feature expert voices and new perspectives in the profession, including one from both till and me. So thinking practitioner listeners can save on joining ABMP at abmp.com forward slash thinking till very good to have you back with me here today, sir. How are things going out there in Colorado?
1: They're going fine. Thank you. And thanks for the time off. It was uh, good to have it. And it was fun to listen to what you're up to. You had some good conversations going.
0: Yeah, I had some fun things going with uh, a number of different people there. And uh, we do want to let you know that you were missed. So oh, it's good to have you back. All right. Nice.
1: All right. And we have uh, some an interesting topic lined up for today. What are we talking about, Whitney?
0: Yeah, today we, we decided we we're going to talk about changing our minds essentially is the big picture here so this the topic that we've got focused here today is reversals or perspective reversals essentially meaning things that we've changed our perspective about from some time previously either when we you know first learned about things earlier on in our career or you know more recently we might have been advocating or teaching or presenting things and then we've changed our perspective and changed our minds so we're going to talk a little about why we might have done that what those things are about and um what happens when you change your perspective and change your mind on
1: things? So, Yeah, uh, and you invited me to share some of my top things that have changed my mind about or changed my perspective on. So I got yeah. a little list here. And it's a fascinating topic because, well, it's really um, relevant to the world now because we have so many different opinions about things clashing with each other. And of course, each side wants the other to change their mind. And so that raises the question of, does is that even possible and when it happens what what makes that uh good or bad and why why people, people don't change their mind i know that reflecting back on these topics i had to think through a bunch of those things for myself So i look forward to digging into that as well
0: yeah well i'm curious like based on what you just said right there what yeah. what is it that what convinces you or what are sort of like in a more general sense what makes you change your mind about something uh-huh. is it Is it reading somebody's post on Facebook?
1: (laughs) Facts, evidence. What I'm saying with a smirk, because uh, I like facts and I like evidence. I'm totally into that stuff. Mm -hmm. But I mean, the modern view and the research shows that it's not facts. It's not evidence that actually gets people to change their minds. Mm -hmm. It really isn't. It's some deeper, more mysterious process where our, what also emerges our biases or our proclivities or our things we already think true. You know we find evidence for that but yeah it's, it's a mystery to me actually because uh we do change our minds i certainly have yeah and uh, i haven't changed my mind about this topic yet but give me enough time and i might <laughs> okay right yeah but uh, i would assume
0: probably it's, it's some combination of those things too i mean that yeah. you know is joking aside i think facts and evidence do play a role in that to some degree okay. uh, they help sh- shape our perspectives and um, you know, help change some of the things t- to a certain degree. But I think, you know, certainly saying that they are the r- the sole piece of it is probably oversimplification.
1: Yeah. yeah. And I had a few arguments with people. They won. So I just totally changed the way I thought about things too. Mm-hmm. Not. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the other thing that doesn't seem to happen is that we don't seem to be very good at convincing each other to change our minds. But yeah. And yet change happens. We do change our perspectives on things.
0: So you would not necessarily advocate for the he who shouts loudest wins in their perspective is is the one adopted
1: It depends on how what you define it as wins but yeah. in terms of changing perspectives no not usually Loudness yeah. doesn't really do that so much.
0: right yeah. all right well, we'll try to keep it civil here today as we talk about those things that <laughs> okay. we've changed our mind about all right. so uh, so where do we where do we start looking at this?
1: Um, um, well, you you gave me a little preview of your list. Can I invite you to share one? And I got some, I'll like, you know, I got to call you and raise you or whatever. Sure. I'm yeah. Across, so, across the table. Sure.
0: I'll start talking about, you know, I, I'm, in making this list and thinking about these things, I tried to think of like, what are some things that are more general and what are some things that are really specific. I'm going to start with uh-huh. a specific one on the top of my list here. And these are in no particular order, but they're just things that really came to mind. Um, and this one has to do with, um, thinking more deeply about uh, physiological accuracy and understanding some more from um, applying, you know, thoughts and facts and things like this. But early on Mm. um, I was teaching a lot of things about specific massage techniques, such as, um, broadening techniques where you, you, know, go across the direction of a muscle fiber, for example, with uh, large sweeping movements or, um, yeah. even more specific like things, cross deep- fiber or yeah. Yeah. Sort okay. of cross fiber applications. So, um, and I was teaching a lot that what we're doing is sort of spreading muscle fibers apart, with uh-huh. our broad cross fiber applications and, and, you know, helping enhance pliability of tissue by just making it more, mobile through this spreading apart and and i think that also would kind of relate to what what i taught early on about deep friction techniques you know breaking up scar tissue with tendon you know tendon scars and things like that from friction techniques separating those individual fibers okay with our pressure techniques so uh, we
1: got the broadening idea and then we have the separating or adhesions kind of idea
0: yeah and the more i kind of like looked at the physics of this process and the physiology of it, and looking at you know individual muscle fiber size compared to the capability of applying more specific pressure to individual fibers, it really you know I changed my perspective a lot. And rec- and you know right now, I'll just say right now because things again mm. could change somewhere later down the road. But mm. I just don't think we can do that. I don't think when we press through layers of skin, subcutaneous fascia, fatty tissue, and all that kind of stuff. By the time we get down to those fibers, the pressure is dispersed across a larger area compared to the size of those individual fibers. I just don't think we can spread them apart and broaden them. Now, that has not changed the effectiveness of those techniques in getting results with people, and I think those results are probably for different reasons, a variety of different reasons, but I, I no longer stick to that narrative of broadening and separating fibers or or you know doing this Uh to separate fibers with deep friction treatments and things like that
1: all right no that's that's very specific and i think uh you kind of probably gave away the takeaway for most of these for me too which is that well maybe they're effective but maybe not for the reasons we thought at least the you know that's that's the theme these days i know for the last decade or whoever's been and our field, but also in my work. And so there's an example. You're not thinking that you're uh, physically spreading out the tissue anymore no, or in affecting individual muscle fibers in the same way. Mm-hmm. But uh, so that your perspective changed. Did that change your work? Um, you know,
0: I still tend to do a lot of those same things the same way for mm-hmm. certain types of things that I'm working on because they got good results. Okay. And that kind of brings up, you know, another question that gets asked a lot, you know, well, does it really matter then? I mean, does it even matter oh. if you're still doing the same thing, but, and getting good results, like, yeah. why does this matter? And I uh, would call people's attention also to a, a really good blog post that Todd Hargrove did a number of years ago, um, and I think oh. it was titled something like, Why It Matters what we're doing uh, yeah. or what happens you know and and he was advocating for yeah we've changed a lot of perspectives and we might still be doing some of the same things but it actually does matter for us to understand why we're doing this or what happens and that's you know primarily because we might come up with erroneous assumptions that get applied to some other thing that are you know not correct about what we're doing or we're explaining things incorrectly to people and just you know, being accurate does in fact matter. It might lead us astray down to make other decisions somewhere down the road that are just not, not as accurate.
1: We'll put a link to Todd's. Yeah. it was a podcast or was an article? It was a was it blog, blog post. post, if blog I remember post okay. Correctly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we, we had him as a guest up. here, but yeah, you're, I remember that one, that, uh, that one he did. I sure am familiar with the discussion. So thank you for that yeah. great encapsulation of it. Yeah. Uh, any more to say about that?
0: And No, that's kind of like a, that would be a, a good example of something, you know, refined perspective and, and change some of those things uh, on my list there. So what, what's something on your list?
1: That well, I got right? a number of those and, uh, you know, you were very specific anatomically. I'm probably going to be more general and just before I'll put, get into my comparable one. But before I do that, I want to say, I um, actually drew a blank when you asked me this question which was weird because I think a lot of my teaching in this last 10 years has been about going back and revisioning what I was teaching before. And for example, these old recordings, you and I were just talking about that. We have recordings of ourselves, uh, me from the nineties, you know, teaching in a golf shirt Mm -hmm. and uh, I, people, those are still in the market. People are still buying and watching and writing in about those from amazing to me, still complimenting them. But it was uh, really awkward, I could say, for me to realize that what I'm saying now is very different in my mind, in my ears, to what I was saying then. Yeah. And so to have that out there puts me in a funny position.
0: Do you see instances where, those, where what you're talking about now actually contradicts those things? Or has it just yeah. sort of changed oh, yeah. a little bit direction? or
1: Both. Yeah, yeah. Well, some of us, like you said, like I still, a lot of the techniques are still effective. Maybe my explanation is different, but there's things I've completely changed. And that's why I went to the fact, my faculty and said, okay, yeah. you guys, what would you say that you've seen me change? Cause we've been working together for many years. Mm-hmm. And um, the first thing of course that came back was very similar. Do we release in quotes fascia mm-hmm. and my, and that was the model I was trained in that it was about fascial change. the The change in people's, posture, position, experience even were explained by the mechanism fascial change. It turns out we maybe didn't understand as much about fascial changes. as we thought we did. And then what are the changes that our work produces? And we've done so many episodes about this, I don't need to try to recapitulate that. But basically that my prospective reversal has been from trying to change the tissue to produce a good result to just trying to produce a good result. Mm-hmm. And really looking at what defines that for the client and for me, and getting as honed in or as direct and clear about that result as I can, as opposed to trying to work through the medium of uh, tissue, yeah. for example, mm-hmm. since we tissue isn't quite as the same as we understood it when I trained. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And so in, in doing that, has that um, also changed like perspectives of what you do clinically and working with people about, yes. for example, thinking about fascial work, you know, do you right. still think along the lines of that tissue as something you're targeting? Or do you think more along the lines of like, I want to help get this person, let's say moving better or moving more in their mm. body or whatever. You know, I think I it's you. really
1: raised the role of the subjective report of the client. That's uh-huh. yeah. the short answer. I do some of what you're saying, but rather than me doing a passive assessment of their posture, like I was trained as a rolfer or even their movement, as I was mm-hmm. also trained as a rolfer or, or rolfing movement, first practitioner, I'll do a very detailed conversation. It's not that complex. It's just mostly I want to understand what are they bothered by? What are they disturbed by? What are they motivated by? Why are they coming to see me? There's some issue they're wanting to address. I want to really understand it from their point of view. I want to understand how they know they even have something they want to deal with. Yeah, right. And then that helps me to find the domain. Uh, sometimes it's rare, but sometimes people come and says, yeah, the, my deep cervical fascia on my left side is just feeling a little overconnected with my thoracolumbar region, but mm. that's pretty rare. Yeah. So I'm more like, uh, okay, so how do you, you know, my, it's harder to turn my head and I, it hurts. I feel a funny thing right here, you know? So I, I work more on that level now. Yeah. And I am using some of the same, you know, techniques that are shown in those videos, but I'm also doing a lot more, I would say, uh, inside out work with the clients where I'm really getting them to, in a simple way, report on their experience and, and play with, Uh, movement options and things like that while they're on the table Mm -hmm. yeah
0: and i think uh you know it's interesting we we probably all to some degree overemphasize what we think our clients really know or understand about what we're doing yeah um and and probably it's not as complex and 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 deep as we might think it is in terms of their perspective about well you're doing this kind of work and getting this kind of result with me you know
1: no, it's great to educate clients. It's so fun when someone's interested and I can just kind of prattle away about my geeky stuff. Mm-hmm. But I actually, as much as I can, I want to work from my hands and from the present moment experience and from their inside out experience too. So yeah. it's, it's gone from being, being a tissue technician to be more of a experienced technician or artist or something like that. You know. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, yeah. that sounds good. What's okay. What do you, what else you got?
0: Well, I would say I would kind of like take off from where you started right there and just say, you know, along a similar line, um, a very similar kind of of perspective shift. Also getting back to the whole thing of posture and structure uh, for me uh, has changed a lot. You know, a lot of the way that I did early training and focused a lot on stuff that I had learned, you know, early studying, you know, postural analysis through NMT and, uh, you know, working in the field of orthopedics for quite a number of years, you know, I would look at certain types of things with, you know, a postural evaluation say, okay, this individual has a, you know, an anterior pelvic tilt. So obviously we need to work on those tissues that are hypertonic and creating that and then get them to shorten. And then that's going to correct this person's posture and we'll get them, you know, changed and for fixed crossed, lower sort of, crossed yeah.
1: as well as so yeah. many yeah there's so many models there
0: exactly and so um i and i think the more the time is going you, you know and what was interesting i was thinking about this there were some instances in which you know i remember coming across some techniques and this came um, back in i'm thinking maybe like late 1990s perhaps when i was doing a bunch of research for my uh, orthopedic massage book mm. and with studying a lot of the stuff that was currently out there from other practitioners, teachers about how to do things like, you know, how to fix an anterior pelvic tilt or how to fix a lateral right. pelvic tilt. Right. And some of the techniques and things that some people were advocating, I thought this must be right because this person's a well-known authority and, you know, they must've done all this stuff and had this work, but it just doesn't, oh. I'm not sure. I, I believe that would really make those changes, but I, kind of went down that road anyway and sort of said well it must be working because they must be getting results doing this and i think you had a you had
1: a wondering or a doubt but you went with it
0: and that's one of those uh confirmation biases of appealing to authority you know of just Uh saying like well so and so is an expert they must know that this works correctly or something but i think over time i've really become much more uh accepting of the fact that you know these are models that are sometimes created out of something as simple as structural mechanics or physics and yeah. it would make sense but that ain't how the body works you know and that's just um for example those kinds of things just simply working on those tissues does not necessarily magically fix somebody's posture to make it be correct in a way that's going to stay there and that this fix really did it to them i just i'm not you so know, sold you don't that think model. that's
1: just because you never got good enough at it
0: um that could be i should enter that as a possibility <laughs> you know that's definitely that's definitely one of the possibilities there so okay yeah because that's
1: often the critique that if we it don't is. see radical posture changes just because we haven't evolved enough as practitioners or whatever yeah. it is
0: yeah and I think the thing that sort of led me away from that, because, you know, certainly, I mean, that's part of like a whole imposter syndrome thing. I'm like, well, maybe that's really true. You know, uh, <laughs> it's just like, I'm not just not good enough at it. But I think the thing that kind of led me away from putting a whole lot of coins in that basket was studying more about motor learning okay. and recognizing that uh, you can do some things. And, you know, people love to do these little postural you know treatment things and put people up in front of the classroom and you know make things change and do all this kind of stuff yes have you ever seen um andre video about the easily fooled nervous system
1: it uh, doesn't ring a bell no tell oh, us about
0: it we got to put this in the show links and also just have you take a look at this I'm wonderful demonstration video uh called the easily i believe if i remember the name correctly the easily fooled nervous system and it's uh done by Andrea Spina. And if I remember correctly, I believe he's a chiropractor and, you know, movement specialist, brilliant guy. And he does this demonstration of just showing, you know, this is something that happens all the time in, you know, workshops and training programs. You get you know, a student to come up in front of the class and you do some kind of movement thing with them and you just look at them and then you do this little treatment thing. And all of a sudden they're, you know, dramatically better. And he does this little demonstration where he's trying to show improving this guy's hamstring length and he does some little thing to his leg and he gets greater range of motion and then he does something to one of the audience members and then comes back and looks at this guy and his range of motion is improved you know by not even working on that person by doing something to somebody else in the audience and the whole oh that's I, because
1: our fascia is all interconnected
0: oh there's our fascial connection yes and and of course um, the star trek fans will say well that's there's there's the board connection right there of of uh everything is connected to the the higher mind right through fascial connections so between individuals so but yeah the, the point is that in that particular instance you know and we love to what i was trying to get back to is like in a treatment room you know we'll do this or we'll do this in a workshop or a classroom position where we you know put somebody up and we love to see that immediate change and think, wow this is great yeah. my work did this but there's all kinds of things wrapped up in that having to do with expectation and, you know, the, the being up in front of the classroom and like, you oh, know, of yeah. course you want to see those changes happen. So you're going to make certain things happen to the nervous system that allow it to occur. But, uh, you know, in, in many of these instances, a lot of this stuff will happen you'll think oh, like, wow, I did great work here. But then, you know, tomorrow morning or at the end of the day, when the person you know gets home after driving home from their massage treatment on the freeway and uh-huh. getting all wound up in the car from, you know, road rage, uh-huh. You've lost that, you know, and so uh, a, a lot of this, I think, is to me a lot more related to motor learning and retraining the body how to move than it is what I did with my hands that fixed that, so to speak.
1: So your your perspective reversal was from postural analysis and postural correction to motor learning. You said, which explains those things that you're seeing in that video.
0: Yeah, I think that I think that is a, a greater percentage of what's happening. And some of the a greater percentage of the changes that I think we see seeing some people have to do a lot more with, you know, impacting, like we've talked about before, proprioception, you know, awareness, interoception, those things that really change our sense of how we feel and how we move and how we are in our bodies. Uh, I still think the role that we play as practitioners is crucially important because we are a facilitator for that change. Mm. But I kind of moved away from this idea that I'm doing something to people and making it fix, you know, positionally, especially.
1: Nice. No, that's a I think a lot of even if people don't go through that exact transformation you spoke about, I think a lot of people, as just as they get more mastery and artistry becomes much less about fixing and treating and doing two. Yeah. And more about uh, catalyzing, facilitating, encouraging some sort of shift on the other side yeah. of the table. Right. Well, it, so, it, can I share my- I was going to uh, say, yeah, what's, what's next on your list there? It's, it's you make me think about uh, the shift I made from posture and position and symmetrical alignment, which is what I was trained in and valued a lot and got pretty good at analyzing. So from that point of view, to a point of view that was much simpler and probably more pragmatic. And in the end, uh, at least as effective, if not more. So it, I'm just thinking about my process of teaching how to work with scoliosis. And you and I did a whole episode on scoliosis where you helped me articulate that some, but with scoliosis in particular, um, I, it helped, ha- it helped me to realize that my goal wasn't just to make people straight; that there were other things along the ways that were really helpful to the person. And then, when I taught a class, when I put together a class on working with uh, the sacroiliac joints, and especially intra-segmental pelvic dynamics, upslips, downslips, that kind of thing, which are postural descriptions, positional descriptions. Uh, It really challenged me to think through a rationale and a way of articulating it that made sense to me because I was trained in some pretty, you know, complex ways of assessing bony landmarks and extrapolating the different positional anomalies or uh, distortions was the word I'm doing air quotes Mm -hmm. around the pelvis Uh, And yet I had to really step back and look and say what seems to really make a difference to the person on the table. And my perspective reversal at that point was, it did seem to be either a shift in mobility and or a shift in the perception or the proprioceptive, interceptive perception.
0: Yeah. Would you say this is one of those instances possibly where um, you know, facts and, you know, maybe research studies and things like that also helped shape that to some degree, because, you know, a lot of the studies that had come out in recent years have said there's just some pretty poor inter reliability about position of landmarks in correlation with, you know, pain and uh-huh. dysfunction kind of things. That's so.
1: right. Yeah. The idea that you can't put, uh, you know, Uh, a lineup like a police lineup mug you know whatever you call that you Mm -hmm. get like three people with pain three people without put them in a lineup and have the experts through just visual analysis pick out the people with pain based on position things you can't do it it's just yeah no and then more specifically like specific assessments even don't even match up person to person or day to day with the same person yeah so Uh, No, that wasn't the facts (laughs) that convinced me at that point. I found those facts later and was really uh, validated in my confirmation bias that it was probably mobility and experience that was more impactful than position. Mm -hmm. But it was something that I was really questioning when I would really uh, have to say, what do I see working and what what fits for me? And then also, what can I teach? All those things are coming together to really uh, help me make that reversal of that shift from just paying attention to alignment or symmetry Mm -hmm. to more of options for movement, which includes, by the way, the option not to move. So it isn't just the same as range of movement. It's really, you have a full range of options of movement. Yeah. And the refining of proprioception, which -hmm. is really a great return for me. So hearkening back to my, and you know, I've talked about our early training is it were or studied in psychology, the field of psychology for me, early training of psychotherapy, which is really more of an awareness based or process based practice. And, uh, you know, my early, I think there was a clash for me and I've talked about it here before. So I'm trying to repeat the stories too much, but there was a clash for me coming out of the Rolf Institute in the eighties. And then going to study with some of Ida Rolf's former students at that time, like Judith Aston, or Don Johnson or Robert Hall, who were really taking what they learned with Ida Rolf and shifting it to a more functional approach or really questioning some of the ideals there. And it really mixed me up as a young practitioner. Yeah. Because I, you know, to oversimplify it for sure, um, it was a shift away from a tissue based or a a result you know a um uh optimal functioning uh, approach to a more process-oriented awareness unfolding the developing evolution of the organism approach that's not to make it so black and white for sure my rolfing background gave me that too but the maybe it's just as simple as i it at some point and this is maybe 20 years in it didn't make sense for me to try to Uh, push things into alignment anymore Mm -hmm. and it didn't make sense for me to try to uh, measure bony landmarks position and then assume that because the position was in quotes distorted that that was a problem Mm -hmm. that was the reversal and then i had to come up with a set of tools and principles that would help me as a practitioner and help my students continue to do the good they do
0: and i think you know some of those ideas are really uh, highly seductive to many of us, especially you know early on as yeah. we're beginning to find our way into these places. I remember this is probably 1989, maybe, uh, going to a workshop or training program with a very prominent CE educator in the massage field who was talking about work they had done with a professional basketball team and they were called in as some kind of consultant uh-huh. and this individual was saying well they just they went to watch the team practice one day and we we're watching one particular player and said this guy is going to have these particular injuries because i can see what's going on with his biomechanics and this is going to have, this is going to be a problem and i felt like wow that is awesome i want to yeah, be able to do that totally you know, because like really get sucked into that idea well and i, I want Took me many years, I think, to really get back to realizing uh, that's pretty presumptuous in terms of so. predictive sure, the processing, uh, and there's a lot of other factors in there that may or may not play out.
1: But uh, just to be the devil's advocate for a second, it's not like posture is nothing, and especially at high levels of performance, yeah, in a sports situation or something. The, the you know, I would never presume to go up against a trainer or a coach or something that had that model and used it effectively. I can't say that they're wrong and I'm right at all. Mm-hmm. And there's, there is, especially as you uh, look at either really extreme levels of say scoliosis or really extreme levels of pelvic asymmetry, you do get more symptoms, yep. but in the range of, of most people's scoliosis and most people's pelvic asymmetries, there's mm-hmm. not a greater incidence of pain. Yeah. And probably the same is true of athletics too. at high levels of performance then those little differences really do matter mm-hmm. around in position you could say, or, you know, certainly form, but um, at the level that most of us work at in the bodywork practices and that I was working at, it was a, it was a, a uh, really effective perspective reversal for me to start looking at the things I do now. Yeah. And, right. And yeah. so that's also, you mentioned before something about accuracy And uh, we want the narratives to be as accurate as we can. I would not argue with that at all, except to say that I have given up for myself, at least as a working hypothesis, I have given up trying to be accurate or truthful, or even find out what's right uh, because it's such a movable target for me. Mm -hmm. And I do change my perspective. And so it's, it's, I think my current benchmark is what seems to be, useful, but also of course what resonates, what feels right to me. And I acknowledge that as an emotional uh, valence, as a valuation of that, it fits and feels right. It's not to say that that's confirms it, but that's to say that it it helps me be more effective at it. Yeah. And then it's my test is, is it useful? Does it seem to help the client with what they're after as well? Yeah.
0: I I think you hear a lot of people talking nowadays about the movement towards trying to be less wrong. As as kind of more of a goal than than necessarily saying something like, well, "I want to be less
1: right." I want to be you know, right. I want to be less uh, right and less wrong. I just I'm I'm like doing the axis, 90 degree axis from that or something. Uh-huh. I'm saying so, I'm I'm gonna I'm not even gonna try to evaluate in terms of right and wrong. It's more like, does it seem to get good feedback from me and from my client? Yeah, and t- try not to presume anything else about it being mm-hmm. whatever else.
0: Yeah. So sort of shooting you're you're shooting for kind of a middle ground of of more if I think I heard you say this one time, something like more towards results oriented treatments and away from um, descriptive rationales of of what you're doing and why you're doing necessarily. Yeah. Is that is that accurate?
1: That's nice. And I'm just thinking of Ida Rolf's quote of uh, some apparent debate was going on and she says, everybody stop trying to figure it out. Just go finger it out. Mm-hmm. go finger it out so it's just you know it's the pragmatic approach of what we've f- working with what we actually feel and what our clients actually feel that very empirical yeah based uh ground that was the groundwork for science it is the groundwork for science and so sure
0: yeah yeah so good pieces there for sure so um well i was going to bring up another, another one? one here yeah that, please um i think both you and i probably and almost you know well i don't say almost all but a huge of course huge number of people throughout the whole world of musculoskeletal or manual therapy care um have been sort of impacted by and that's some of the more recent research and explorations of of pain and pain Uh science uh, things and so for me that um brought on a lot of big changes um you know probably if you kind of boil it down to a few simple statements or a few simple concepts and ideas recognizing, um, for example, that um, pain does not necessarily equal tissue damage or there's not a direct correlation between the degree of pain someone feels and the degree of tissue damage that is present or vice versa. You know that the, That's
1: become one of the axioms of, say, the biopsychosocial yeah. approach. Yeah, that, uh, it certainly
0: has. And uh-huh. like a number of things, I, I've also seen this get off track, in my opinion, by boiling this down to oversimplified uh, concepts or perspectives. For example, I think, you know, there was a um, blog post that I saw or a like, Facebook post or something like that, where I believe it was Diane Jacobs had sent this because, you know, she's a major thought leader this in this in this, re- in this area. And uh, lots of people have sort of glommed onto this statement and repeated it numerous times of saying there's no correlation between the degree of tissue damage and the degree of pain. And to me, uh, that really oversimplified the statement because I don't think, uh, well, certainly I can't get on board with saying there's no correlation because if there was no correlation between the degree of tissue damage and the degree of pain or we may not need anesthesia for surgery or some right. in cases like that. So yeah, there's a correlation between tissue damage wow. and pain in many cases. I think it would be accurate to say there is not always a correlation between the degree of tissue damage and the degree of pain. And to me, I'm comfortable with that statement, but yes, I think we have to be careful jumping too far into these things uh, without being a little bit more specific about different types of situations. But the, the crux of the matter being that I always kind of went along the assumption that, that those two things were directly related. And, you know, I had uh-huh. to do something to the tissue damage and fix it in order to, f- right. to address and alleviate somebody's pain. And That's
1: really big. And no, and I, I owe Diane Jacobs a debt of gratitude just for her indirect influence. I've never studied with her. Yeah. Her neuro neural modulation work, but just the thoughts that she's put out there, that one, oh, it's not her thought. I think I first heard it from, you know, Laura Mamosley in the, yeah when his, uh, I think it was why things hurt video got popular. And this was a long time ago, but uh, she really articulated that it from a manual therapist point of view. And she, her other line that resonated for me at the time was we're, we're way too mesodermal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To, and we need to think more ectodermally. And that made a lot of sense for the, the things I was thinking and uh, putting together. But you're saying that can be taken to excess too. That can become its own dogma or its own absolutist point of view in a way that uh, people can get carried away with.
0: Yeah. I think, you know, there's certainly pendulum swings on on all these kinds of things. And that whole, the you know, the whole pain science movement of going towards more biopsychosocial models and things like that has been, really, um, ground shifting for lots of us in ways yeah. that really helped us be more, uh, robust and, and comprehensive in our treatment approaches and things like that. But, you know, part of the problems from this also that come out of this is, you know, sometimes the pendulum swings too far, or, you know, there is some degree of, I heard somebody say this one time, and I think it, it might've been you or somebody else, but they were, it was a really eloquent statement about, oh. um, you know, the potential problems of bad pain education with clients when we try oh. to teach them about these things that we've learned and we just really botch it up and we make the situation worse you know because that can certainly happen as well
1: no that wasn't that's me but i get it that's it's true that we get we learn something that's radically reversed our perspective and then to bring somebody else along is another order of magnitude in skillfulness and, and perspective yeah yeah but that idea that there is not necessarily, I think you said a correlation between tissue damage and trigger pain is actually pretty liberating for a lot of people. A lot of people yeah. in pain to really help to tease apart their assumptions about what's going on because they're hurt and yeah. the possibilities that that opens up for them, but also for us as therapists.
0: Yeah. And you know, what's interesting about this too is that I see this sometimes also doing both things is it? It it can liberate a lot of, like you said, liberate a lot of those kinds of things. And yet at the same time, there are also people who really uh adhere to that kind of model. And when you can't find something Uh that's wrong with a particular tissue through an x-ray or an MRI or whatever Mm it is, physical finding get really frustrated because they want a reason that makes sense to their models or the conceptual ideas of why this hurts. And there's and you know. It, what can end up happening in some of those instances, and I've seen this occur before, is like you you have some finding on a diagnostic test, like, you know, a person with a, a disc herniation and extreme pain that they have in their back and, and down their leg or whatever. Yep. And uh, that may or may not be the cause of it. But once they see that or once some health professional sees that thing, it gets blamed for that stuff, when it may or may not be the case, and sometimes people really want to have a reason for for what that is, and and they'll really put a lot of eggs in that basket, which you know can be helpful, but it can also potentially be
1: problematic for, for yeah. Well, especially when there's something like a disc bulge that has a poor correlation overall. There's definitely people that have disc bulges that that is what is hurting them. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. But uh, like you said, if we latch onto that as as the explanation, that might limit our possibilities or influence our treatment choices. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I don't know why I'm doing this devil's advocate thing. There's a there's a special kind of purgatory reserved for those who don't have a diagnosis and can't get one mm-hmm. too. So to not know why I have something going on is also pretty like, pretty awful sometimes. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and it's pretty, human it can be really actually relieving to have an explanation that seems to uh, at least explain it if not offer some ways out but then and yeah right and then we get the other uh, downfall which is getting too attached to that explanation so that we miss some of the possibilities Mm
0: -hmm. yeah and i think you know we need to and this is you know kind of some of the things you and i've talked about before and certainly one of the areas where you know your background in studying things like you know, understanding a little bit more about relationships and communication in the therapeutic environment through your work yeah. in the psychotherapy world yeah. is so valuable because we're not really trained well in how to manage some of those kinds of things of, of those um, relationship things, or the 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 challenges, perspectives that people come up with, when we try to mm-hmm. sometimes impose a model that we have on people, and we're not really listening to what it is that they're looking for and what's going to be therapeutically beneficial for them. And, and that's where
1: postural analysis, or doing pain yeah. science, or whatever it is. Yeah, mm-hmm. that and was so, a good uh, point.
0: Yeah, those 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 kinds of things become much more finessed, fine points of of good clinicianship, so to speak.
1: That's right, Mm -hmm. that's right. Yeah, well, what else have you got? Yeah, well, yeah, I do have one or two more. I got a whole list, but one or two more I could pull out. Um, It's, this is a pretty arcane one, but this is basically the question of, are we stimulating a parasympathetic response when we work with the sacrum? (laughs)
0: <laughs> I like it okay, because it's so geeky uh, mm-hmm. and so
1: specific, but basically the, the model has been and is that the sacral nerve, parasympathetic nervous system has a whole group of sacral nerves. Mm-hmm. And that it's also concentrated up in your neck and the cranial nerves mm-hmm. so that there's two main centers of parasympathetic nerve uh, exiting the cranial cervical group, which includes the vagus nerve mm-hmm. and a sacral group, which includes the ganglion impar and some other structures, which uh, were this idea, those are the two centers of parasympathetic response and parasympathetic being the relaxation and healing response that we think we're evoking when we do body work and explains a lot of its benefits. This was basically the rationale behind cranial sacral work, cranium sacrum being the two centers of parasympathetic uh, nerves purportedly as well as lots of other trauma therapies, like uh, Mm -hmm. TRE and things like that, that assumed that the sacral nerves were parasympathetic and so untraumatizing, relaxing the nervous system. There was a a, a very careful research project a few years ago, and I'll put a, a reference in the show notes too, that analyzed the molecular structure of these nerves and compared them throughout the spine and came to the pretty clear conclusion that the sacral nerves were sympathetic rather than parasympathetic.
0: Mm, interesting.
1: Yeah, and uh, uh, that caused a stir in some of the neuroscience community, saying, "Wow, this is really bizarre that we can assume we know the structure of the anatom of the autonomic nervous system for so long, and all of a sudden have a whole branch of it get reclassified." Mm-hmm. But it was fascinating to me in this question that we're talking about, like, how can we think we're doing something for so long and have an explanation that again, more detailed research uncovers as being different. And I wrote, I, again, I wrote it up for Massage and Body Works. I'll put a link in that to the mm-hmm. um, show notes, but it was, it was a f- I chose it because, well, my faculty suggested it. They said, that's one of the places you changed your mind, uh-huh. but and it was questioning, dogma at the time but it was an interesting place where i actually got some pushback that i didn't expect either and i should have because this i mean every one of these reversals we've talked about has uh offended somebody i think or caused some kind of of uh uh, disbelief or challenge from people that know me i think and maybe Mm. lost me some friends i don't know but this one in particular i got some really specific pushback after i put that article out that said, well, sacral nerves probably aren't parasympathetic, actually. After all, to say it was something like, I was really surprised at how quickly you rep- you repudiated uh, Rolf's teachings around this, mm-hmm. and uh, it's it really got me thinking about the role of or the you know, it's almost like a tension between preserving the wisdom of our lineage, yeah, and. Uh, what we do when we have different or conflicting information, mm-hmm. and that's certainly an old story in the structural integration community. And I, I imagine I don't know. I'd be curious about what you think, Whitney. If that's a, if that appears in the massage community as well. But it was uh, it was one of those moments when I go, okay, this is there's a whole lot more here than molecular types mm-hmm. in the nerves. There's the implications of what that means for our work. Yeah. And my big takeaway was what you said in your first one that, well, even if those sacral nerves are sympathetic, in other words, more associated classically with fight or flight mechanisms, so what? A pelvic lift still relaxes people and has been really shown mm-hmm. to increase vagal tone and a bunch of parasympathetic effects. Uh, you know, does, does anybody, but us geeks care?
0: Anyway? Yeah. Right.
1: That's a good question. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm just, you got me going. I want to do an episode now on sympathetic, parasympathetic classifications because it turns out that whole concept was not empirical, was theoretical, and was mm-hmm. based on never, never really validated with the effects of the nerves. It was based on presumed functions based on their location and appearance and things like that.
0: Yeah. And what a good illustration, too, of those things that would make sense theoretically uh-huh. that yeah. we think should happen um but have not really been sort of tested and confirmed to be the way it really is you know or the, or at least a, a better understanding of, of this being kind of like the way it is mm. so yeah. yeah
1: well my sacral technique still passed the test of usefulness yeah if not for accuracy so it's just that i had to shift my the thing i was telling my clients and myself and my students about why they seem to work
0: yeah yeah so, well, you asked uh, as we kind of like getting your wrapping up here. You had also mm-hmm. asked a couple other questions for us to think about, and I'm I'm curious mm-hmm. um, to sort of touch base on that. About you know what kind of makes some of these things difficult, some of these role reverse or perspective reversals mm-hmm. difficult or 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 challenging. What, from your perspective, makes some of those more challenging or difficult? Sometimes? Well,
1: it's pretty difficult to, to reverse my perspective uh if i'm attached to being right about my old one yeah and who isn't attached to being right about their perspective
0: what is that quote from um i can't even remember who it's from about like it's very difficult to get somebody to change their perspective about something if their income depends on them not mark twain to understand it was that from mark twain I yeah
1: right He's, if a man has to choose between an explanation that uh supports his livelihood or contradicts it he's going to choose the one that supports it obviously. yeah so it's right yeah there's that i think and it, the more I you mean, have
0: invested into it the probably the stronger you'll hold on to those that's right those ideas yeah
1: I and mean, there's a fun podcast i happened to listen to before you even proposed this topic the other day for economics how to change your mind mm-hmm. where he's basically talking about he's interviewing a few interesting people about about what makes it hard and the cost like say you're in politics Changing your mind, it could haunt you your whole career. So, yeah, right. To change your, you know, to go from one position to the next, it's going to be yeah. something your opponents use against you.
0: Yeah, you have to, you know, predict the shifting winds of where public attention, uh, public perception is going to be about something, and like suddenly jump on the bandwagon with it. You know. Yeah. 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 So, well, one of the other things that I, I noticed about this too, and this is, you know, more of an issue I think probably for some of us who's who've been producing educational content is that you know you put stuff out there like in books or videos or whatever some time ago and then something comes along and you change your perspective or ideas about that and it's still out there and yeah. you know somebody pulls it up and quotes on it well so and so believes this you know whitney believes this because you wrote it in this book and so yeah, yeah. you know once that's put Absolutely. out there for posterity that's you know that's kind of hard sometimes too. i still get that you know during
1: yeah. one of my most fun during covid projects though was going back to those old videos and doing a new commentary mm-hmm. over the almost like the director's cut, but in a, in a more interesting way than that, yeah. where we actually got to go through and look at the old stuff as a way to look at how the field has changed and i changed too. And, and then we did a series of classes on that. So that was a way that I made lemonade out of all those lemons in my all background. Right, yeah. And then, you know, I just to put it again, devil's advocate here, Certainly it's hard to change our perspective and there's reasons why, especially if I have an investment in it, it's difficult. But I suppose the the counterpoint to that is um, there can be, and I know we've seen this in the social media debates around the pain science stuff is there can be a, um, a lot of value just on changing for changing sake too. Yeah. Where there's certainly in the dialogue, there's certainly a role for the, the the wisdom of things that might have turned into to tradition uh, you can say or the work that's gone before us even if it doesn't stand the current test uh, that we call you know valid now so there's certainly a role for preserving and honoring traditional wisdom or older forms of knowledge than we have right now too yeah, yeah. So it's such a, such a paradox, huh? such a tension between those two points of view, orthodox and reformed that's been going on so many places for so long. Yeah. So, well, those well, are some
0: interesting things. Anything else guess, you want? Yeah. I want to yeah. ask one more.
1: Okay. Definitely. Uh, give me, maybe it's this time for one, cause I don't want to draw out the episode forever, but what's a, what's a reversal that you ask your students to consider? I would say
0: I ask them to consider every one that I present to them oh. that have reversed things for me. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I also simultaneously ask them to challenge me on those reversals of ideas. You know, things like, you know, the things that we've talked about with, you know, facial elongation. You know, like a lot of pushback on that because of narratives that have been around for a long time, or things like structural changes. And you know, can we do those kinds of things? there's a fair amount of pushback on, on those kinds of things from students. And I always encourage the pushback because yeah. I think that's a valid means of developing clinical reasoning and developing, you know, skills in, you know, critical analysis and things like that. You know, lots of people are not comfortable with pushback from students on those kinds of things, but I um, actively mm-hmm. encourage that because I think it's just really important for our you know, sharpening the sword of our of our minds and our analysis on things. So, um, but I, I do, you know, encourage everybody to 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 look at those things and and you know, all those things that I find for myself that are problematic or challenged or or changed, you know, ask them to look at those things too and tell me where they are with it. That's great.
1: No, I think yeah. I I think my answer would be the same. It's it is those things that I've reversed on or shifted my position on that I I enjoy uh, bringing those up for students and and either getting that mind blown light bulbs go on look or getting that furrowed brow. It's like, wait a minute, Mr. Kind of look, you know, either one of those gets me interested. And I lean into those conversations as well.
0: Yeah, for sure. Good. So, uh, well, we'll continue to change our minds. I would imagine and continue to look at new, new and different ways that we can develop things, but hopefully the world doesn't change too much in the next (laughs) little piece here while we finish up our our places and things that we're doing so anything else that you have to
1: before we wrap up today there's so much this this could go so many places but that's a great place to wrap it up yeah uh let's see i am doing the closing sponsor today Mm -hmm. and that's a pleasure because my the closing sponsor today is handspring publishing and when i was looking for a publisher For a book I wanted to write, I was fortunate enough to have ended up with two offers, one from a large international media conglomerate and the other from Handspring, a small publisher in Scotland that's been run by four great people who love great books and who love our field. And by the way, we're going to have an episode with them coming up. I don't have the number quite yet, but we're going to get them on and actually let them tell their story. And they've had a really interesting one.
0: Yeah. Fascinating story from them. We'll look forward to, to hearing that.
1: Anyway, I'm glad I chose them. And their catalog has emerged as one of the leading collections of professional level books written especially for body workers, movement teachers, and all professionals who use movement or touch to help patients achieve wellness. And do remember handspring's
0: moved to learn webinars are free 45 minute broadcast featuring the authors, including one that you have till so Mm -hmm. head on over there to their website at handspringpublishing.com to check those out and be sure to use the code TTP at checkout for a discount and we thank you again very much handspring for constantly supporting the thinking practitioner podcast. And we would like to say thank you to all of our sponsors. And also, thank you to all of the listeners who've hung out with us here. You can stop by our sites for show notes, transcripts, and extras. You can find that over on my site at academyofclinicalmassage.com. Until where can people find that on yours?
1: Advanced-trainings.com. If there are questions you have about what we've said, things you want to quibble about, lean into, uh, mind-blown light bulb moments you want to share, or anything you want to hear us talk about, email us at info at thethinkingpractitioner.com or look for us on social media. And I want to say too, your reviews that you post on Apple podcasts or the other places where you can review things, we read those as well. And they are so appreciated, so valued. So anyway, uh, you can find me on social media at my name, Till Luca. How about you, Whitney?
0: I uh, same thing. You can find me over on social media on my name, Whitney Lowe. And uh, as Till mentioned, it is helpful. If you will rate us on Apple Podcasts. it does help other people find the show and you can hear us on a variety of platforms, such as Spotify, Stitcher, Google podcasts, or wherever else you happen to listen, please do share the word, tell a friend so they can listen in on us uh, with us too. And of course, if you're unable to find us in any of those locations, you can grab a vinyl copy of the Boston Philharmonic Orchestra doing a cover of My Sharona, and you can hear us on the flip side of that. So With
1: French horn accompaniment?
0: With French horn accompaniment, indeed. Dang. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, that will wrap it up for us here today. And uh, great to have you back, sir. Mr. Luca,
1: welcome back. And Thanks uh, for holding down the fort. Good to be back, and i look forward to more with you.
0: Yep, that sounds good. We'll see you all on the next go-round.
1: Bye.